Right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Born to Rome. Uh, this week, uh, I have the pride and the privilege of welcoming Mr. Thomas O'Keefe. How are, you, how are you doing? Great. How are you doing? It's, I, it's, it's supposed to snow down here in Nashville this weekend. That's going to be exciting. How common of, uh, of an occurrence is that? Very uncommon. Ah. Yeah, if it, uh, if it snows this much, the kids are out of school and it's like it's like the end of the world. It's like rioting and grocery stores are emptied of milk and bread. And it just, it's, it's a mess. Everyone's SUV drives their yeah, SUV and uh, thinks they can drive uh, in the snow and they wreck. Yeah. Just a lot of, uh, a lot of overcompensation. That's right. A hundred percent. So hopefully I will, well, I will avoid we, some of that. Well, I wish you good luck in that. We're, uh, yeah, we're you. very, very cold <laughs> up here. Yes. It's uh, it's an extremely arctic day up here in uh, up here in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. So, um, it seems like you'll experience a little bit of our flavor, but uh, hopefully not too no, much. No, I've been there a million times, but I always drive through there on my way to Toronto. Yes. Yeah. So, do you go uh, just from up from Buffalo? Then, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or from Toronto to Detroit, which is the one you don't want to do because when yeah. you um, when you leave Toronto and drive across Windsor towards Detroit, when you cross into the U.S. at the Ambassador Bridge in U.S., that is the place where the U.S. trains all their customs people for the entire Canadian border from ocean to ocean. So if you go over – when you come into the U.S. on the Ambassador Bridge in Detroit, that's where you really get it. That makes a lot of sense, and that has never. I I always wondered why it was so stiff at that border crossing there. It yeah, always seems to it. be because they're all trainees and they're all by the book. Yes, I've spent many hours there. Yes, and uh, it's it seems like the um, the friendlier uh, border people at the Buffalo crossing seem to be like the. Uh, the people that are, you know, they're in the uh, they're in the autumn of their border career. They're just right. they're, they're ready to, you know, they're they've seen it all. You know, they're not. Right. I'm not saying they're slacking off, but they're not. No, no, no. They're just they know what's important yes. and what's not important. They're not trying to impress any superiors. As, as, right. Yes. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, our bus drivers will take us. If you were headed towards Detroit, they'll veer to the north, and there's a crossing that's about 20 miles north of Detroit, and they'll actually take that one to go out of the way to avoid the Ambassador Bridge. A little knowledge. I see. <laughs> if you, if you're a not little, on tour, you don't a little think pro about this tip. Stuff. So that's that seems like a very good way to segue into um, into your introduction. So, Mr. Right. Thomas O'Keefe, uh, world famous uh, tour manager for several um, several massive bands and artists over the years, as well as a professional musician yourself. Um, mm -hmm. What um, should we just go down the list of just kind of a, a brief list of some of the credits of people that you? Yeah, if with? you want, that's probably the simplest way to do it. I, um, you know, I played in a punk rock band for many, many years called Anti-Scene from Charlotte, North Carolina. And that that was that probably took me from the 80s into the mid 
90s, into the mid to later 90s. Anti-Scene was one of those bands that was a grunge rock band that didn't get to be famous. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like when they, when Nirvana got famous and these other bands got famous, Anti-Scene didn't, which is fine. It all worked out okay. But, you know, Kurt Cobain was an Anti-Scene fan. That's pretty awesome for me to be able to say that. Yeah. Wow. But that doesn't pay the bills or anything, (laughs) being able to say that. So... I retired from that band in 96. I started tour managing and I worked for several different bands uh, that you never heard of. And then I worked tour managed a band called Degeneration. They were from New York City. Great band. You would, re- if you're unaware of them, you would, given what you, how your band sounds, you would love, love them. I'm writing it down and right now. And then I tour managed Ryan Adams' first band, Whiskey Town, from 98, 97 to 2000. I ended up writing a book about it called Waiting to Derail. This is the book about that. And then after that, I worked with Train for 13 years, which was, you know, when I started with them, we were playing smaller places and I went all the way up to arenas and sheds with them. And then I I worked in a management company for a bit here in Nashville. I worked with Sia. I worked with uh, Third Eye Blind. And then... um, and then the last five years, five and a half years, have been with Weezer. Wow. So that has kind of – so, yeah, so I've done a lot of stuff. I mean, and I'm happy. To, I will likely end my career, you know, with – as, you know, I'll probably work with Weezer for seven or eight more years before I get too old to do it. Wow. Well, I mean, that that is an incredible uh, list of artists that you've worked with and an incredible resume. But I'd like to just circle back to the first thing that you mentioned there, working with uh, or playing with uh, Anti-Scene. So Anti-Scene, um, can you uh, elaborate a little bit on Anti-Scene's affiliation with Gigi Allen? <laughs> yeah. Somehow we became friends with him. I don't really understand. I don't recall exactly when it happened. And there was a weird period of time. Gigi Allen was a, a obviously a crazy person and a and a <laughs> a uh, often misunderstood person. You know, mm. I would say because he, you know, he's obviously most famous for his shows where he, you know, destroyed everything and made a mess and mm-hmm. did all kinds of shenanigans on stage. Uh, but that, unfortunately. Uh, you know, you the people didn't get. He never got the credit for being a great songwriter that I thought he was, which sounds insane, I know. But you know, he was really good at that. He really understood rock and roll. He really understood songwriting, recording, and you know, there are albums of his and songs of his that, although the lyrics can be insanely offensive, and you're you know, really, it's meant to be a joke. It's not. He's not being really serious about that. But he lived a fucked up life and he, um, you know, there were times where he was completely normal. There was times where he was out of his mind. There are times where he, uh, so this is, you know, there's one thing about punk rock dudes that I never understood. And that is a lot of them always have this fascination with like serial killers and crap like that. Why would you want to, I have zero, zero interest in that stuff, right? So Gigi writes a letter to John Hinckley. John Hinckley is the guy who shot Ronald Reagan in the early 80s, right? 
So Gigi writes him a letter in prison yes. and says, hey, man, that was really cool what you did. Maybe if you get out, we'll try again someday. Which, of course, the fucking Secret Service is reading this guy's mail. And Gigi is in Boston one day and the black van pulls up and they throw him in the black van. And the Secret Service interrogates him for like four hours, you know. And it was – this was back when when Bush number one was – old man Bush was president in the early yeah. 90s. And they interrogated Gigi for a couple hours and – they said, what would you do if George Bush were, were sitting right here? And Gigi's like, I don't know. I'd buy him a beer. What the fuck? <laughs> so the Secret Service finally let him go, and they said, we realize you're not a threat. You're just a fucking idiot for writing that letter. Yeah. So, But he ended up having to go to jail for some some girlfriend thing, and he uh, he ended up being in jail for a while. But we recorded an album with him, and – at the time, me and Jeff, the singer of my band, we worked at a x-ray machine company south of Charlotte, North Carolina. And we worked with a bunch of hillbilly redneck types. They all knew who Gigi Allen was from us, you know, because we had talked about him. And we actually brought Gigi to the company Christmas party one year, which was pretty amazing. I can't believe we didn't get fired. But, um, yeah, Gigi was a handful. And then he eventually... You know, he died of a heroin overdose. So obviously heroin doesn't come with instructions. And he had a lot of money on him because he had just gotten a record, a small record advance from some label in Europe. So he had like 20 grand in his pocket and he ended up overdosing, which was a shame. But he, you know, here we are talking about him 25 years later. And that's honestly what he cared most about, you know, being remembered for being this lunatic. So he got his wish. He did get his wish, I guess is 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 very much so true. So so you know, I guess this whole John Hinckley letter thing, would this have happened around the um Todd Phillips movie Hated when he was making that movie? Yeah, I mean, I think this I'm not sure when he filmed that. Yeah. Uh but yeah, probably this I mean, probably in the early Gigi's heyday, so to speak was probably the very late 80s into the early 90s. So I imagine that was when it was. I mean, keep mm -hmm. in mind, he would do a tour. He would book a tour of, say, 15 shows, and he would cancel six or seven of them. You know, he would do a show one night, and then he would overdo it, and then the next day he would feel like shit, or he'd be beat up, or got arrested, or something would always. He would if he had twenty shows in a row, like me or you would have twenty shows, and we would yeah. go play twenty shows, yeah. right? He would have twenty shows, he'd go play eleven of them. <laughs> Sometimes, if he felt like shit, the next day he'd go fuck it, cancel the show. So he didn't. He. Um, and and that in a way, the fact that he would book a show and then cancel it, it almost and and then the kids would go and it was canceled, it almost raised his mystique even more. Yeah. You know? But but he was definitely none of that stuff was an act; it was real. And he came from a super fucked up childhood, and uh, I guess if you tie that into what he did, it kind of almost makes sense in in some very weird, messed up way, you know. But I, I just hate the fact – the only thing 
I, I'm not condoning everything he ever did, and I certainly wouldn't condone a lot of his su- subject matter and his songs, but he was more talented than people gave him credit for when it came to being a musician and putting songs together. So I would say that. Yeah, it, well, it seems like, I mean, I guess when you create such a larger-than-life uh, edifice of presentation the way he does, right. there's no way that it's going to, it's, there's no way it's not going to eclipse your actual creative output and your, right. and your, your, your actual yeah, body because he's famous for that. I mean, I've seen him play quite a few, I saw him several times live, and it was frightening, you know? Yeah. I mean, his shows were like watching like a 15 minute long car wreck, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, the whole time you're watching yeah. it, you're like, oh, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't like, all right, everybody, how you doing tonight? No. It wasn't that, you know, it's about the most confrontational show I could, I could probably name, or at least, I, I mean, yeah, never no, having seen nothing, him, but. nothing is even a, uh, anything is such a distant second that it doesn't even count. Yeah. So, so now, so did you mention that you had, uh, you had experience with him in the recording studio that, that kind of environment? Yeah, yeah we recorded my band, reco- we recorded an album with him and that's where I came to that determination because what happened was we recorded, we recorded about 10 songs with no lyrics. We just put the songs together and there's like verse, chorus, verse, mm-hmm. chorus kind of songs. And then he listened to them while he was in prison. And when he got out, he was in prison for like eight or 10 months or something. And and when he got out, he, we went to the studio and he's like, this is song number one. Cause none of the songs had names. You know, we just recorded them and we just knew them by what number they were on the tape. And he said, this is song number one. It's called blah, blah, blah. I'm going to sing this. You sing this, you sing this. And he had it all together in his mind. So you can't, you know, I was, I was, I remember leaving the recording studio that day impressed that, he had had figured it all out and had it he knew exactly what he wanted it to be he mapped it all out he had done yeah he had done i mean of course when you're you know if i locked you in prison for eight months and you had nothing else yeah yeah it would be pretty easy you know your your girlfriend's not calling you and you're not you know shoveling snow in the driveway that day you're not figuring out what to what to cook for dinner that night or anything right yeah it's whatever they give you (laughs) I'm not cond- I'm not suggesting you try it, but yeah, he definitely had some time to figure it all out. And so you say that in in the kind of recording environment, he was an extremely focused individual that was probably Yeah, I think so. I really do. I mean, I think that he I mean, he was definitely an erratic person from a obviously, you know, if some psychiatrist could probably give you a better, you know, r- definition of what's wrong with him. But uh he really, what he cared most about was he wanted to be, you heard the stories about Alice Cooper when you were a kid and you heard the stories about, you think you heard the stories about Ozzy, that 99% of them he never really did. And then Gigi wanted to be the guy who really did what he said he was going to do, you know? Yeah. And, and he definitely did that because if you saw him one time, you remember, you left remembering it. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. There was no, uh, there's no substitutions for GG Allen. That's for sure. He is, no. a, he is, he is a true <laughs> nope. original and it's, it seems yeah. like he, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting to hear your perspective that he was very cognizant of the fact that he was basically establishing a legacy while he was living. And that was one of his central, you know, aims, would you say, or, or it, what, what well, I was, think that, I think that's not an, un, that's not a, 
a uh, he's not the only person I have seen do that. I would I would say in his own way, I would say precisely the same thing about Ryan Adams. You know, Ryan Adams in his early infancy was building and creating this character that you know him to be. And it was a very methodical, intentional thing. You know, he was well aware of what doing, if he did this, it would have this reaction. And if he did this, it would have this reaction. And he created this person, that this character that is him. Now, I would say, you know, if you hung out with him, that character is him. But it was a, it was a, it was definitely pre-planned and thought out and put together. It wasn't an accident. Yes. It so w- I would say in his own way, obviously what Gigi did and what Ryan did have no similarities other than they're essentially both rooted in punk rock. But other than that, uh, they are uh, two different things, but the same forward thinking went into both of them. Yes. The same uh, con- consciousness of, of, of um, the conscious, the conscious presentation of whatever they're doing, you know, and precisely. And it's, yeah. it's, Ryan knew what he was, he knew he was building this thing and this image and this thing that would become what, you know, what it is, what it became. It's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing that way, because it's, it seems like, um, you know, you, you, it's, it would be, you'd be hard pressed to think of, uh, you know, two people that are, that seem on the, on the surface, uh, so different in their presentation between Gigi Allen and Ryan Adams. But to me, the thing that unites us all, uh, regardless of where we kind of fall on the spectrum of our intensity is a kind of appreciation and reverence for, uh, rock and roll history and understanding how how the how this mythology gets um, uh, laid down and wanting to be a part of that, you know. Well, I mean, I think that's super important. You know, I remember one time I was on tour somewhere in the early two thousands, and the singer a train asked me. He said, "Man, why do you know so much about rock music history? Why do you care about that?" And I said, "Because anything that happens to." To, there's nothing that's going to happen to you that hasn't already happened to Mick Jagger. So if I know what Mick Jagger did, I can tell you what to do. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. This is not you're not the first singer that ever, you know, quit a band and put out a solo record or whatever. I mean, this happens all the time. So if you study this stuff and you know, okay, Mick Jagger did this, Pete Townsend did this, but it was a mistake. Maybe yeah. I'll do this. You know, there's definitely a roadmap. And you could certainly learn there's a tremendous mountain of mistakes that bands made, especially business-wise in the 70s and early 80s, that that you can, as an artist, can learn from. So, of course, why? How would you – A, there's two reasons to study it. A, because that's where you come from as a musician. We're all just the pieces of the puzzle that we came from. You know what I mean? I'm a guy, I'm 57 years old. I was born in 1964. When I was 14, it was 1978. Do you think I'm a Kiss fan? Of course I fucking am. I'm the pristine age of a Kiss fan. I fucking love Kiss. I still do. I love Cheap Trick. I love all those bands from that period because that's what I was listening to when I was 14 years old because I was, was I'm the perfect age of somebody that likes that kind of music. And, um, but you, so inevitably we're all made up from that stuff, but we should also 
as as people who actually are in this business for real, you got to pay attention to what other people did to make sure you're not making the same mistake that Mick Jagger made. Yes, and there are it, there are some well treaded highways of mistakes throughout the the history. Pages right, the of road to hell is paved. Yeah, <laughs> with many yeah mistakes. paved with solo albums. Yeah. Solo albums. Yeah, you better believe it. Yeah. That's a good quote. Um, so, okay. So I just wanted to circle back on, on the whole, on, on, you know, your origins in rock and roll. And that's a very good point about, you know, um, the place and time that, uh, that you're born and how you get indoctrinated into, you know, the whole, uh, tapestry of rock and roll. So you were born in 1964, you said, and, um, you're from, are you from, you're from North Carolina, correct? No, I grew up in Connecticut, Connecticut, but I moved to North Carolina as a teenager. Gotcha. And where what was your first you know was your first first um um introduction to rock and roll through the you know through the bands of the 70s at the time like was it was a cheap trick i guess so i mean i still somewhere on a wall somewhere in my in my office here i still have my very first album that i liked that i had that was like mine and it was magical mystery tour by the beatles and i remember thinking when i was maybe I was in kindergarten or first grade, probably first grade. I remember realizing that the long-haired Beatle albums were better than the short-haired Beatle albums. I knew that. I made a conscious decision. You know, but then, I mean, and I listened to a lot of rock music my parents listened to, but I mean, I got my first copy. My first record was Kiss Destroyer. Nice. And then it was all downhill from there. But, uh, and I didn't start going to concerts. I went the first concert I went to was in nineteen seventy-eight. I saw Boston with oh, Sammy wow. Hagar opening. And I'm lucky, you know, that's the thing where people that again younger than me didn't see things I saw. People that were a year and a half older than me, like a guy a year and a half older than me probably saw Led Zeppelin. I didn't. Yeah. You know, but someone before me. So my 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 I didn't see Queen, which really bums me out, but um, I saw Kiss in the heyday. I saw Van Halen four times in the heyday. I saw Ozzy with Randy Rhodes. Um, I mean, there's quite a few of those. I saw Journey on Escape in 1981. So, I mean, I got to see a lot of stuff, but I... uh, I was just a little, I, I there, but then I also made mistakes. I never saw Prince. I never saw Bowie. I missed seeing Queen the one time I could have gone and I didn't do it. So you always make mistakes like that because you always think, ah, I'll see him next year. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes there's not a next year, you know? Yeah. Sometimes but it's, I always a, believe a, yeah. it's definitely like my wife is eight years younger than me. And when she was little, she was afraid of Kiss. You know, because she see their posters <laughs> in the roller skating yeah. rink and, oh, what's that? You know, I loved them and still do. So I always hate it when dudes my age go, yeah, I used to like Kiss and then I grew up. I started listening to Wilco. I mean, shut up. Yeah, fuck you off. You know, I don't yeah. want to hear that crap. Kiss rules. Ugh. Yeah. It's, Kiss is way better ins- than Wilco. I feel like we just lost like a third of the people saying that. I, but. If that's what we're going to lose people on, then I, then I would rather just lose those people. Amen. Because if that's right. not if that's not if that's not just a fact, then I don't know what it is. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's 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 simple. So yeah, I always think what what it all it all depends on where you grow up. If you're in a situation, if you're in a place where, um, you know, it's easy to go to concerts, and also your age is very 
you know, like I met dudes standing in line at the concert when I was a kid that saw Led Zeppelin and saw Queen mm-hmm. and saw those kind of bands that I was just a little bit too young. I missed out on. What was, do you have a, a best kind of show of your early, of your early teens, your teenage years that you, that, that I mean, kind of I rise remember, above them all? Uh, there's, there, there's so many and it's impossible to pick one. I just, I always remember the first time I saw Kiss. I I was strug- I remember sitting in there and I was I was struggling with the realization that I was in the same building that they were in. You know, I couldn't believe that I was about to see them, you know, and they were amazing, I thought, but um I mean, I there's so many that I saw that were great, you know. It's it, yeah. it would be impossible to pick my best 10. Now, my band Anti-Scene opened for Cheap Trick once, which was fucking amazing. Wow. So that might be one of my favorite concerts. And then I also That's managed awesome. this band called Watershed from Columbus, Ohio. And we opened for, I told them, I said, I'm going to get you guys an opening slot with Cheap Trick, but I have to play rhythm guitar. And they were like, okay, good. Because I had done it before. So actually, we opened for them uh, maybe about five years ago. Wow. Yeah, so it was pretty great. That's like, awesome. Moments like that are pretty amazing. No, it, nothing beats it. Getting to open nothing beats it. <laughs> like my favorite part of writing this book was that Bunny Carlos wrote me a blurb for it, and he actually really liked it. I just was sitting in my house here. I just, I just can't comprehend the fact that Bunny Carlos read my book. You know, what I mean, it's just, it's not. I just can't put those things together. It's funny picturing him reading reading the book to wearing his suit and tie with just right, a, exactly. a cigarette just hanging out uh, the way he uh, is at the Budokan. Uh, right. Yeah, I just I just can't even though I, you know, I work with a band that's bigger than they are bigger than Cheap Trick is now. I can't in my mind I can't differentiate the two, you know what I mean? I still think of yeah. the bands I liked as when I was a kid as being those guys, you know. No, I, I I fully agree, and that's um, it, it. Just goes back to what we were discussing earlier about being indoctrinated into the mythology, uh-huh. and when you get to somehow reach out and and all of that mythology, um, uh, basically the rubber hits the road, and as you said, you're in the same building as them, right? Or you have some kind of real life interaction with these with these, as I said, these these gods. Yeah, um, it's there's nothing really nothing that beats it. I, it's I, pretty, I you know, it's, it's crazy if you don't expect it. I met Gene Simmons once. I was at the L.A. Forum at a Backstreet Boys show. I was working with Mandy Moore and I walked around the corner and there's Gene Simmons standing there. And I was like, holy shit, I couldn't believe it. You know, yeah, Gene. It's, uh, I've been fortunate that most of those people I've met have always been nice. You know, it seems like the older guys, they're, you know, they're cool. And, and really they're just older versions of us, you know, they're fans too. If, if Joe Elliott from Def Leppard was standing next to you and he got to meet Naughty Holder from Slade, he would be starstruck, you know? So it would, it's all, um, it's all like a giant, uh, thing and we're all a part of it in some weird way, which is, which is pretty, it's still pretty amazing, I think. That's the thing that makes it all, all the better, you know. Just being, right. All being part of the continuum, indeed. You're all just handing down stories and songs, basically. Right. It's all the Which same is, twelve chords. It's just yeah. been going on for fifty years. Yeah, and exactly. Everyone's still doing it. Exactly. I'm just happy um, to be a tiny little part of it. You and me both. You and me right. both. Um, 
I was, so I was going to ask, when did, um, you know, obviously, you, so you were, you were a kid, prime a, prime age, as you said, for the entire kind of like stadiums, uh, stadium rock of the late 70s. When did alternative music first kind of broach your sphere? When did you first become aware of... Well, I was of- playing in that, I was playing in anti-scene, and I knew of Nirvana and then Tad and Mud Honey and, you know, Sound. We opened for Soundgarden in 1991. Wow. So... I remember, uh, so I knew of those bands and then, you know, and then Nirvana started to hit and really break out, you know, and the singer of my old band was like, man, fuck Nirvana. And I was like, dude, it's a punk rock band that's bigger than Michael Jackson. We should be happy yeah. about this. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. not going to be the Ramones again. It's going to be somebody no. else. But, um, yeah, so of course, I mean, I was aware of all those bands probably in the later the later 80s. I'll tell you what the real epiphany was for me with with alternative rock is I went to go see Ozzy Osbourne on like uh, one of the the terrible 80s period where he had the perm and he was wearing the glittery outfit like shot in the dark of the ultimate sin tour and Metallica opened up for him. Right. And it was Metallica on Ride the Lightning with the original bass player before he died. Wow. And these guys were four dudes with with jeans on and T-shirts. And it was punk rock, 100 percent. And I was like, I had only I'd seen punk rock at punk rock bars that I went to in places my band played. But I had never seen punk rock in the arena I'd never seen punk rock in a pedestrian way where every, like, why do these 2,000 people know about this? I thought there were only 50 people in my town that knew about it. And it shocked the shit out of me. And I remember seeing these people. I remember seeing Metallica playing. People are slam dancing in the floor of this arena. And I was just like, oh, my God, it's getting, this shit is getting ready to fucking blow up. And I remember watching Ozzy for a minute and he comes down, he's got the perm and it's ridiculous. And I left and I drove to my singer's house that night. And I was like, dude, this shit is going to fucking happen. And that would have been probably 1986, I would guess, maybe 85, 86, somewhere right yeah, in there. That makes sense in the chronology. Yeah. Whenever, wherever the ultimate sin Ozzy record, whatever that tour was, but Metallica was opening. That was the moment when I saw that happen. I was like, holy shit, this is this whole thing. Because I thought punk rock only existed in little punk rock bars. I'd never seen it so widely accepted, you know, by an arena full of kids in Charlotte, North Carolina in the mid 80s. So I knew that made me realize it was going to, it was about, it was all about to boil over. That is awesome. I, uh, I, I heard, I heard a similar story about, um, about Metallica at the, um, I think it was, uh, it was one of the, uh, one of the U S festivals, the, like the mm-hmm. us festivals in the eighties and the same, basically the same story that like, um, I think it was, I can't remember the other headliners of the, of the show uh, or the other artists of the show, but you know, again, a much more maybe established and kind of polished looking band and Metallica, right. same era, you know, ride right. the lightning, ripped yep. jeans and ripped t-shirt go on and just slay. They just, they right. just destroy 
um, and have almost a miniature smells like teen spirit moment. Um, right. hundred you know, percent. But, but of metal basically, which is a super cool thing. All, rock and roll always benefits from these, like, you know, stripping away all the shit and then, and, 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 and restarting the whole thing. Right. But that's why the remotes were so great because they were just rock. Well, that's why ACDC is so great because, you know, here's ACDC selling their whatever number album it is. And it was the biggest album in the whole world. They're ACDC is the biggest band in the whole world. And, but they are rock and roll distilled down to its purest yeah. form. You know, there's yeah. no bullshit. They have a few little gimmicks here and there for a show because they have to keep 70,000 people on their feet, but there's just nobody better than them. I mean, no. they're just a hundred percent the real deal. I mean, it's, he's got five, 10 marshals all cranked up. They're all really running. Those speakers on stage are all real. I have a yeah. friend that guitar tech for them. And I went backstage at the last, I went to the last ACDC show they ever did in Philly with Axel singing. It was actually really good and went back and played Malcolm's guitar and touched Angus's guitar. <laughs> and like they had yeah, yeah, yeah. like 15 marshals that are all turned on. I mean, it's just no wonder they're all deaf. Yeah, that's awesome. But also, but it's real. It's not pretend. Yeah. You know, it's not pretend. It's it's it is the uh, it is the full experience of with all of its uh, with all of its danger. Yeah. No, you go. See, my buddy said if you go, he said if you stand on that stage while they're playing, it's like a hundred and thirty decibels. Like it will rip your face off. Like it's it's like <laughs> you standing behind an airliner when it takes off. You know. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's that loud. It will curdle your brain. It, it will, will curdle your brain. And yeah. you'll, you'll never be able to allow, you'll never ever be able to have children after. It will sterilize yeah, exactly. you. I mean, sterilize it's just, you it's with so, volume. I saw them, I was with Sia at the Grammys like about four or five years ago and ACDC opened the show. And when they do those, you know, these TV shows, these big award shows, what they do is, they start the show at noon and they run the whole show and do a real rehearsal all the way through to like three o'clock. Then everyone will go do the red carpet, blah, 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 blah. And then they do it again for real. Right. So the, the rehearsal during the day, everyone has to go to it, no matter who you are. And ACDC was opening and it was at the Staples Center in L.A. And it was so loud and it's an empty arena, but they're just just it's the real deal. There's dust and dirt falling down from the ceiling of the arena because <laughs> all the dust that settled on the beams up 100 feet up in the arena is all coming down because they're shaking the entire building. Wow. I mean, it was the it was so loud. I could it was hilarious that it was that loud. You know, and they're Comically just up there loud. doing what they do. So yeah, that is awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, it's just I, I, st it's I still a, have not seen them. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, you have to, well, they're, they're supposed to do one more round of dates. So I would definitely, wherever you got to go, I would go do it because they're, I'm, they're the real deal. I mean, they've been playing the same. I saw them the first time the night before I turned 18, like I was going to be 18 in like three hours, right. In Atlanta. Yeah. And if I, if I wrote down the set list, when I saw them the night I turned 18 and the set list, the last time I saw them, it's 90% the same set because they have so many great songs they have to play 
that their set list really hardly changes, you know? Maybe yeah. there's a couple, two or three new songs, but that's about it. Yeah. And so did you see them in the, would that have been like in first? I saw them on first, first time on For Those About to Rock. Okay. Yeah. So I saw them. I didn't see them on Back in Black. I missed that. And I have friends who saw them with Bon Scott, but I never did. Okay. That was another um, thing where I just was, I was just old enough, it. but I just screwed up and missed it. It happens. It happens. It does, yeah. We just miss things. Um, yeah. And here's a question. I got to ask this because this is my favorite band of all time. I got to, I got to ask, do you, uh, did you ever, uh, uh, see or, you know, come across the replacements? No, I love the replacements and I never saw them back in the day. They used to play in Charlotte around the time that I was playing in my band, but I made a very foolish decision back in those days. And that was, I would never go see other bands like that. Cause I did, I thought it would mess me up. You know what I mean? Uh. I didn't, I wanted to play and I wanted to be who I was playing and not be that guy. And I screwed up in the replacements. It was a terrible mistake, but they probably played right down the street from my house and I didn't go. So I was a it dumb happens. ass. It happens. Yes. So that's one, that's another one I missed. Um, and so when you were kind of uh, just getting going with um with 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 um with with anti scene what was the um what was the current climate like of alternative music did you say that Nirvana had had not quite happened yet like this is well, the late still, 80s I early stopped 90s? playing in anti scene in 95 so certainly yeah. in 91 92 um you know, we would go to Europe and they were, we had the same agent in Europe. So there was an agency over there near, near Cologne and they had some backline. We probably all use the same backline, but, uh, you know, we would play places, you know, in Europe, we would play places, you know, we might have a hundred people at one show. We might have 500 people at another show. It was, we were certainly did well there. We did well in parts of the U S you know, we helmet opened for us once, you know, we did, uh, we played with Soundgarden. We opened for uh, Red Cross once. We opened for Danzig once. We opened for the Ramones oh, wow. a couple times. So, so we got sick. to do a lot of opening slots with, we were the biggest band from Charlotte at the time in that kind of music. So if a bigger band was coming, we would get the, we were, get the were all but guaranteed the opening slot if they were using yeah. local support. So I thought it was a great time. And, um, it's just, it ran its course sort of. And I just started thinking that I wanted to, um, there was, there was a weird thing that happened in around 92, 93, 94. And that was the labels grabbed all the bands that, that were alternative rock that were the obvious ones like Nirvana gets big. Okay. I'm going to grab Soundgarden. I'm going to grab Pearl Jam. I'm going to grab this band. I'm going to grab that band. So all those bands got swiped up. They dumped all the hair metal bands that were in the pipeline. So now it was the second signing of alternative rock bands. This would have been around 92, 93. So the labels went out and they signed every band that was alternative rock, even if they had just started. Like the first band I tour managed was a band you never heard of called Luster, L-U-S-T-R-E. They'd played five or six shows and they got signed to A&M Records. Wow. 
you know. Now, Weezer got signed around that same time, and of course, they're still kicking super hard, but um, a lot of these bands got signed, my friends in Watershed got signed to Epic Records. They only signed to Epic because Epic had Cheap Trick. And um, so all these bands got, this second round of bands got signed very quickly, but they just threw them up against the wall, and if they stuck, they stuck, and if they didn't, they all got dropped. No second so, chances, yeah. No second chances. So, you know, the first band I worked with, Luster, they were uh, they were dropped. I went out with them the summer of 96, and by fall, they were dropped. Wow. So it was over. So yeah. I remember playing a show with Luster in, outside Toronto at a racetrack, kind of northeast of Toronto, and Mossport Park, I think it's called. We were doing this giant festival out there. And a year later, they were done and those guys all had other jobs. You know, it had gone it, – it went, it went up and went down very quickly. So they uh, – but of course, bands like Weezer and the Smashing Pumpkins and a few other bands got signed and they still exist from that time period. Yeah. So would you say that there was would you say that the, the the entire kind of like gold rush climate of that early 90s thing really had a lot to do with the expediency with which it all petered out this whole you know this well, ravenous I mean, I appetite think they used to have artist development I mean stop and think about what would happen if we took those rules and applied them to all the bands I grew up listening to I mean Kiss got big on their fourth album Rush yeah. got big on their fourth album. Led Zeppelin yeah. didn't get big on their first album. Black Sabbath didn't get big. I mean, Styx, Foreigner, Journey, Ted Nugent, Cheap Trick, Cheap all Trick. these bands, they, were, they got big. on Very few of those bands from brick. the 70s got big on their first album. Most of the time it was three or four albums in. Cheap Trick got big on their fourth album. Yeah. So, yeah. If you applied those rules of, hey, you're going to make one album and you're done, there would be no Queen. There would be no Led Zeppelin. There would be no Black Sabbath. There'd be no Kiss. All that stuff would not, wouldn't exist because back then they would give these bands a chance. There would be no rush, you know? I mean, it's, it's pretty, um, it sucks they didn't give these bands more of a chance to make more records, but they were just, they signed a whole shitload. They signed every band they could find back then. Yeah, it sounds. It just sounds like a crazy time. Um, and the, but you know, I, I we um we worked with a producer named uh, John Goodmanson, who's also part of the. Uh, I think he's worked with Train as well. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, John John John's from Seattle, and he worked with a lot of um, you know bands that were part of the grunge thing and Sleater Kinney. And he just he talks about that the the app. He, he says the same thing that you said about that entire climate, that time in the early mid nineties of just like these massive inflated budgets, but also like it could be here today, gone tomorrow, you know? Oh yeah. hundred percent. And then of course, right in the middle of that, um, in the middle of that, you had the whole, you know, DVD or the, you know, the, uh, ability to upload music on the internet. You know, I remember doing a train album once the album came out and we were in New York and we went out to some giant dinner and spent God knows how much money on dinner and, thousands of dollars and and did all this stuff and then a year and a half later we had a new album out and they're calling me bitching about how much money i'm spending for us to do letterman to do a tv show like if they're bitching 
at me about bringing a band that has sold 5 million albums, how much money are they going to give your band? <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like they're, they got, you know, I remember someone from Sony Music telling me once, we're hurting in this floor, but two floors up, Sony Electronics is making every CD burner they can possibly make. <laughs> and it's in the same fucking building. Oh my God, so, that's hilarious. Like, walk up the stairs, you guys are fucking us over. Yeah. You know, but but that was a weird time. You're right. And now it's evolved. Now we're on the other end of it. So now bands make albums and you um thank God they still do, but you know, you guys, um, aren't going to make much money off the album. You're going to make money from promoting the album and going out on tour when we can do that. Yes. Yes. It's uh, it's, it's a very strange time, especially right now, February right now, of 2021. It's very strange. Yeah. Yes. Um, I got my W2 that showed me how much money I made last year. And it reminded me of when I played in my punk bandolier and pizzas <laughs> because it was approximately the same amount of the one I got 30 years ago. So, oh, my God. I mean, trust me. Yes, there's an entire industry of people are essentially dying on the vine right now because we're everyone's sitting at home and, and uh, it's not – it's really bad, but hopefully it, all we can do is kind of hope. I mean, I don't know what else to do. You know what I mean? I don't know yeah. how to do anything else. So we just have to kind of get through it and uh, hopefully we'll be on the other end of it and we'll get to go do stuff again. Well, I'm glad that, you know, we can, we can, uh, we can have this discussion and, 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 and even just kind of shed some light on the entire situation right now that's facing your entire line of work and which is immediately adjacent to my current line of work playing, but we, I mean, we, we couldn't do what we do, um, without, um, the assistance of, um, of, of everybody that makes touring and shows possible. It's, it's, right. it's, it's the lifeblood yeah, of, no, of everybody's sitting at home. I mean, I have a million rockstar friends that are sitting at home right now and they're all, they're all waiting to know when they can go back out and do this again, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's funny because when you spend all of your time thinking about and developing skills in one vein, your ability to pivot, uh, into something else is, um, not, uh, not the greatest if you spent your entire no, life. Well, though, that's the problem with this is because, if you are if you are playing in a rock band, you're used to that life. I'm used to that life. I don't yeah. own this. This is as good as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, I don't own a suit. I'm not you fucking know, learning how, how to code. To, how am I? What am I going to do? Where, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I was kind of hoping to work for like six or seven more years, you know, and and maybe be done with all this stuff and. Um, I don't know. You can't. It's pretty hard to change careers at 57. You know, I mean, it's yeah. hard to change careers at any time in your life. So I don't know. I mean, I'm just going to wait it out and see what uh, hopefully we'll go back to work this summer, I hope. Well, there seems to be lots of uh, lots of promising or at least um, at, uh, there's some optimism on the horizon. There's yes, 100 percent. Yeah. Right, you know, it's like everybody's I think it's still a, optimistic that this summer later especially later in the summer is going to be kind of things will start opening up and start happening yeah and you guys you guys have had a change in uh in in uh 
in management at the top level of the federally, uh, you know, things can change right. uh, because of that. And, um, you know, th there's just, there's lots of promising signs everywhere. It's, it's, I think it's a question of just trying to just stay as, as uh, just on standby and stay positive as long as possible. hundred um, percent. Yeah. That's and all you and can stay. Do. Yeah. That's, that's, it's that's a hiccup. It. It's a huge hiccup. Five years from now, ten years from now, we'll all be talking about it. Oh, remember that? It sucked. Blah blah blah. Yeah. But <laughs> it, I yeah. hope that. Um, I mean, the fear is that you know some people are not going to come back. You know, like no. I don't don't. I wouldn't know if. I mean, who's going to unload our trucks next time we have an arena show? Where did those stagehands, where are all those stagehands that work at the Molson Amphitheater in Toronto? Where are they going to be? Where's those catering people at the amphitheater? Are they still working or what are they, you know, who's it going to be? I I don't think anyone truly knows what's how this is going to pan out. So no. I think we're all just kind of waiting and hopefully in the next few months, it, the situation will sort of evolve into a much better one. I agree. I agree. And it's, it's, it's just the kind of thing that I, obviously this is a catastrophe overall course, for, yeah. especially for our line of work, but it's also, it's, it's not without its silver lining in that it, it, it just very much so demonstrates the imperative nature of, of, um, people's jobs that are often over, overlooked in this, in yeah, this, 100%. Uh, in well, this society. So, you know, a lot of people have gotten to stay home and do stuff. And I did a house renovation here at my house the last six months and I'm happy I was home for that. You know? Um, I mean, we certainly could not have picked a worse line of work for this particular situation. You know what I mean? No. Like if you walk out onto my street and walk up and down my street Everybody in my neighborhood's at work today, except for me, you know? So, I mean, yeah. we definitely, we, we nailed it in terms of picking yeah. the worst possible job for yeah. this mess. But again, we went hopefully it'll hell. be over. We win no. the prize. Exactly. I mean, I remember reading like when this it's I, I feel like I can laugh about it a little bit now, but when they were first announcing what could not happen and why it couldn't happen and they were talking about like the, you know, the droplets, uh, they're, and they're just like, you know, uh, so probably the worst thing ever is, is like a concert with someone singing. That's pretty much the perfect song like, for oh. this whole thing. And I'm like, shit, that's literally <laughs> my job. Minute. Like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Yeah, and there's there are many photos of like the droplets of my sp you know of me right, uh, singing yeah. very hard on that microphone. Yeah, I'm yeah, not with whispering. kids this close to you. Yeah, right. just in my face. I'm like, yeah, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> this super spreaders no. would be a good band name, I guess, at this point. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure somebody's grabbed it already. Oh God, yeah. Um, it's too so early I wanna, for I, that joke, though. But soon, yeah, exactly. someday, like they're, they're getting their act together someday. now. Someday. It'll be like the dead Kennedys. It's just like right, you know, yeah. a little bit later on. Um, so I wanted to ask you a, a couple uh, band-specific questions. Um, okay. Rockstar Supernova. Now, oh, this wow, was a that's show. A good one. Yeah. This was a show that I, <laughs> me and my friends watched when we were in high school and were fascinated by it. For anyone that's unfamiliar, Rockstar Supernova um, was basically a reality show where members of. Um, and I think I can remember some of them off the top of my head. I remember Jason Newstead was freshly out of Metallica, right? Right. He was on bass. Yep. Um, who was on guitar? Oh, Gilby Clark, right? Gilby From Clark, uh, yeah, Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Who was on drums? I can't remember who was on Tommy drums. Tommy Lee. 
Tommy Lee from oh, <laughs> yes. damn. How can I forget Tommy Lee's on drums? So yes, it's Tommy Lee, Gilby, the guy from Metallica, and it's it's basically it was sort of an American Idol esque sort of show, except they reversed it. It's this pretend band of three dudes who were Tommy Lee, Motley Crue uh, on drums, Gilby Clark from Guns N' Roses on guitar, and Jason Newsted on bass, and they're this pretend band that's looking for a singer. So they re so what they did was they had this whole TV show and it went on and on. <clears throat> Excuse me, and it was very popular, it did really well. And then at the end, the kid who the kid singer who was this guy named Lucas Rossi from Toronto, actually, mm-hmm. he becomes the singer. So they go, it's the grand ending of the show, and Lucas is the singer, and here's our tour dates. So we're going out on tour in six months. So here are all the dates. So boom, boom, boom. Everyone's sitting at home and they're watching TV and they're like, oh, shit, I'm going to go see Rockstar Supernova in Chicago, blah, 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 blah. So they buy some tickets. Well, then the band goes in the studio to make an album, right? And they make this album and Butch Walker, my friend Butch Walker, produces it. It's a really a great album. There's really great songs on it. Then they put the album out. Well, why do you go to rock concerts to hear a band play songs that you know, right? Yeah. Why would you go to a rock concert of a band that you've never heard their album? <laughs> you see what I mean? They got the cart yeah. before the horse, sort of. So the album comes out. Nobody takes it seriously because it's a fucking reality TV show band. Yeah. Right? The only place it gets played is in Toronto and Detroit because Lucas is Canadian and they the Canadian radio stations are always looking for Canadian artists, right? Yeah. Because of the rules they have. So we go out on the tour. Nobody knows any of the songs. Like imagine if you went to a rock concert and you had no idea any <laughs> of the songs. Like that's what but was like, happening. And it was terrible because actually the album was good, but the – more people bought the tickets than bought the album. People were buying the tickets because it was they knew the band from the TV show. So when it came time, so the band goes in the studio and makes the album. In the process, they decide they part ways with Jason Newstead. And when it comes time for the band to tour, they get my buddy Johnny Colt, who was the original bass player of the Black Crows. He was in train with me. So they get Johnny Colt to be the bass player. So Johnny's like, hey, man, you should come out with me and do this tour. I was sitting yeah. at home doing nothing. So I was like, sure. So so we had 100. So we did like 25 shows. And the, the shows had no walk-up. You know, what walk-up is for the you kids at home is, you know, if if your band sells 200 tickets for your show next week, the walk-up is how many people buy tickets the day of the show that say, hey, it's nice outside. I'm going to go see your band. We had no walk-up because nobody was – they were afraid that the people that had bought tickets weren't even going to come because they had bought the tickets like a year ago. And they were bought the tickets because it was a reality TV show band. They weren't buying the tickets because you want to go see a band you like, right? So it was super fucked up. But we did the tour – 
and I get to hang out with Tommy Lee every day, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, and he's a hundred percent exactly the dude that you think he is. You know yeah. what I mean? And there, yeah. he's just a 12 year old trapped in a, in a dude's body. You know what I mean? He's like, yeah. no, he's Whoa. that guy. <laughs> Hundred percent spinning the sticks. Yeah, yeah, he would do all that. I would, I would actually play bass at soundcheck with him, and me and him would like jam out, which was pretty fun. That's pretty and, sick. Um, he he would always have a. This is he was dating back then, so he'd always have this assortment of girls that would come out. One would come, she'd stay for a day or two. Then the other couple would come, they'd stay for a day or two, and another one would come. He'd always take one day off, and then he would cycle them back through. So he uh, he had a stereo that he carried with him that was two giant – like imagine if you went into Lee's Palace in Toronto and took the PA. That's his stereo. Like the, It's like a 400-seat club PA, right? It's two giant speakers and a big rack of power amps in his MacBook Pro. So about 20 minutes after the show, you'd walk down the hallway of the arena and you just hear – it's so loud. It sounds like some club in Miami. You'd open the door and he's standing on top of a table with no shirt on with a cigarette in one hand and a vodka cranberry in the other. And there's 50 girls in there dancing around. He's like, hey, bro, come on in. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> so you'd go in. And then the next night, same exact situation 24 hours later, but a different arena, different town. You'd walk down the hallway. You'd hear, you know, you'd go in the door and he's standing on top of the table with the cigarette and the vodka cranberry. And there's nobody in there except for him. He's like, Hey bro, come on in. So it was just constant. (laughs) He, uh, he's the real deal. You know, he, um, he, uh, remember how excited you were when you were like 17 years old and your band was going to play a show somewhere and you were looking forward to it all day long and like, man, we're going to kill it tonight. You know, that kind of thing. He's that way even today. Wow. He's not jaded at all. He's like, let's go. God damn it. You know, he's like ready to, to do it. So he's Tommy Lee uh, rain or shine. What's yeah. He's ready. He's ready to go. He's as excited. Now keep in mind that guy, I mean, he dropped out of high school six weeks before he was supposed to graduate because Motley Crue had to go out on tour. He was always – he was a little bit younger than those other guys were. So I don't think he ever really had a job. I mean, I think he went right from high school to being in Motley Crue in the 80s. So wow. it was pretty – it was pretty full blast. He was, so he was he's pretty at- entertaining. That's all. It's great to hear that Tommy Lee is exactly how you think Tommy Lee's. He is precisely that dude. (laughs) There's no, there's no anything else. Like he's like an open book. It's like what you think it is, is what it is. Now I have to ask, um, and it's totally, totally understandable if, if this is, um, off limits information, but was there a reason stipulated by Mr. Jason Newstead uh, for for leaving the camp, or was it uh, similar? Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure, to be honest with you. I, if I knew the answer, I would tell you. But I, I, I think they just didn't get along. Maybe I, that's one. That's yeah. kind of the vibe I got. He made the. Yeah. He was on the TV show and he was on the album with them. But I think I, I think something may have happened during the making of the album. I'm not sure. Yeah, but I never yeah. met him because by the time I was in on it, Johnny was playing bass for him. 
that that just sounds like an just such a, such a surreal situation there when you have this you have basically um this like you 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 have big venues uh, worth of tickets that are being sold yet nobody's right. familiar with any of the music because at the time the tickets were purchased there was no music uh, right. per se and right. so it's you all have this completely anxiety. backwards yeah it's all backwards it's all super strange and there's a lot of fear about how the whole thing's going to land. So what were those shows like where you have uh, venues full of people coming to see a band who they don't know one single song by? Or It was or what only- you think. I mean, it was just they were just like, "Uh, what's this?" They at first they played cover. They they didn't know what to do. At first the first two or three Rockstar Supernova shows were almost like Motley Crue. Like Tommy Lee was doing a couple of his Motley Crue tricks. He would go out to the front of the stage and drink a bottle of Jägermeister and hand it to the kids in the audience and do stuff like that. And there were a lot of old ladies that were sitting in the audience that just, you know, uh, that watched the TV show. And TV, you know, mm-hmm. the thing about it is this. If you're on the radio, the radio's this big. If you're on TV, it's like, this big, yeah. you know, people know if your TV is such a much larger monster than the radio is. And um, these people just didn't, they just didn't know any of the songs. So the shows were flat. And then, it, then eventually the band started like playing some covers that they had played throughout the season of the TV show. And then that ended up, you know, being like a big help. So towards the end and, and the opening bands on that tour were all the bands from the TV show. Like, uh, what's his name from Jane's Addiction, the guitar player? He, Dave his band was on there, okay. you know, and a couple of the other bands that were on the TV show, people that were on the TV show were the opening bands. So the whole Did- tour was essentially the whole group of like the finalists from the TV show, sort of. Did the whole thing have uh, – I mean it's, it just, it, it just uh, seems to me by everything that you've said about it, it just seems to have an, uh, a very strange, um, um, uncomfortable reality t- TV show feel uh, when it tried to actually translate from a, a show to real life and didn't quite, um, I guess, land as, as they may have – uh, attempted to do so when they outlined the whole here's how we're going to translate this from a show into real life it just seems like it, right. it, they, it, it's just i mean if anyone gets in their car tomorrow if your band is playing lee's palace god forbid one of my least favorite venues on the planet <laughs> let's <laughs> pretend your band is playing lee's palace tomorrow night and and 75 or 100, 200 kids get in their car and they drive to Toronto or they drive the subway or they do whatever to go see you play. They're going because they want to hear the songs that your band plays, right? If the Rolling Stones are playing, you know, the Air Canada Center, it's be those 45,000 people want to hear the Rolling Stones play the Rolling Stones' greatest hits. This was a weird situation because very you never buy concert tickets for a band that you have no idea what the songs are because the record you bought the tickets six months before you bought the record. Usually it's the other way around. Usually I would buy your record and I would listen to it, like it. Then I would go see you play, you know? So it was just fundamentally flawed overall idea from, from basically the onset. But I think 
the the TV show was the most important component and the live show was just like the bonus part of it. You know what I mean? So I think they were, it was a successful TV show and that's where they all made their money. So what, and I, I guess, um, I guess it goes without saying that at the conclusion of this tour, there wasn't many, wasn't much else booked for, uh, no, no, that well, actually they went to, they went to Australia and New Zealand with this, which of course, now sometimes you go to Australia, I don't remember how many shows they had, you know, you have to remember if you go to Australia, there are times you go to Australia and you play three shows. Yeah. You know, you play Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane, and that's it. Yeah. Maybe you might go and play Perth. Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, and that's it. You know, and maybe you go to Auckland. So there aren't that many. I, I think they went and played like three or four Australian shows and maybe one in New Zealand. But then that was the end of it. Yeah. I didn't do that, though, because at that point I was out. Train was busy again, so I, I had to go do that. And uh, so, so that that brings me into my next uh, question. I, I I had a couple questions about the whole train thing because John Goodmanson, our our mutual, or I, I guess um, a, another fellow from this universe, has has kind of instilled me with um, a fascination with um, with that band. So, um, what was it? What's it like having, uh, or or I guess, uh, tour managing a band that has um, a song that's as big as that drops of Jupiter song. Like what is, is, is it like in the arena, uh, reliably when they play that song or it was, was, well, I mean, it's, you know what it is, is it, it, it's like pouring gas on the fire. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you know, I started with train on their first album tour. I did the first show. I did the first tour with them where they were playing. We played Lee's palace on the first tour that I did with them. That was our wow. Toronto show. So we were playing small three, four, five hundred seat places. Maybe in a couple cities, they were having, you know, five hundred people show up, six hundred people, whatever. But I remember hearing "Drops of Jupiter" as a demo tape in the van one day, and I was like, "Holy shit!" That I, I could hear it playing in my brain like six hours later. And then it came. We had a tour booked for when that album came out and it, the, the song exploded and then the tour sells out immediately. So now we have to go do all those shows, even though they're all sold, they're all sold out. So it really, I mean, when it's working, it's awesome. You know, there's nothing hits. I have a friend that says hits fix everything. You know? <laughs> and if you have a hit, it solves every problem you might have. I mean, it blows up, everything gets big, you know, there's next thing you know, Instead of 10 people standing out behind the bus at night, there's 50 people standing out behind the bus or 100 standing out behind the bus if you're playing clubs. And it's a great big party and everybody's thrilled and everyone's happy. And then about a year later, of course, as you know, the money starts to roll in. But, you know, with Train, I was with them long enough where the first three albums were hits and did really well. Their fourth album didn't do as well. The singer made a solo record, which really didn't do well. And then Hey Soul Sister became a hit and it blew completely up and we were back all in arenas all over the world again, you know? So it went up and went down and went up again. So it's, I was just going to say, it seems to be one of those rare instances though, where that 
previous um, momentum or that previous uh, height was revisited after a dip, like a, a market dip that or it went Soul Sister even song. Way, it went way bigger the second time. Yeah, you know, I think that I think there's a different amount of like, for example, who is the most loyal music listener? The dude who listens to hard rock. You know what I mean? The dude who says, fuck yeah, I'm going to see Metallica. That guy, right? You've never heard a dude say, fuck yeah, I'm going to see John Mayer tonight. You know what I mean? Or fuck yeah, I can't wait to go see the Counting Crows or Matchbox 20. It's going to be off. You know what I mean? I hate to say that because I know the Matchbox 20 guys and they're all nice guys, but no dude has ever said, fuck yeah, I can't wait to see Matchbox 20. It's going to rule. No. That dude goes because his girlfriend likes them, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And she and she's going, so he's going. If your girlfriend goes to see Matchbox 20, you'll go with her. If you're going to see Judas Priest, she'll stay home and go out with her yeah. friends. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah. So my point is that triple hard rock is the kind of music that has the most loyal diehard fans. And triple A hot AC. You know, bands like Train and and Matchbox 20 and Counting Crows and Hootie and the Blowfish and all those kinds of bands that are hot AC sort of bands, their fan base is kind of comes and goes, you know. So if you have a hit on the radio, they do really well. But if they don't have a hit, it kind of tends to drop off a little bit, you know. And so I think that is that is just a product of that type of music, if that mm. makes sense. Whereas yeah. hard rock and punk rock and hard rock and heavy metal and ba- groups like that tend to have a more – that dude is going to see Metallica regardless of what their new album sounds like. Yeah. You know what I mean? But the girl in the cube listening to Mix 107 isn't going to go see John Mayer next time around unless she hears a new song on the radio and knows to go. Yeah. You know what I mean? Comes with the so territory. It's a different level of overall music loyalty. Now, I'm not suggesting those bands don't have large diehard fan bases because they of do, course. but the, the the bigger amount of people are very kind of come and go sort of people, if that makes sense. Yes. No, total, totally makes sense. Um, so out of the other kind of artists that you've worked with, and um, the last thing I kind of wanted to um, – uh, end off on, and I really appreciate all of your time here, Tom. Oh, so yeah, happy this, to do it. Love, uh, love these uh, anecdotes, and especially the GGL stuff is great. Uh, <laughs> so I, I just wanted to ask if there's any kind of highlights as a, a veteran tour manager of the highest caliber, uh, as you are. What, what? Um, you don't have to mention any names, but uh, any any good stories come to mind? And I, again, I, I appreciate that's a bit of a vague question. I get asked it sometimes, and I kind of blank yeah. up. But if, is there anything that comes to mind um, that you can share with, uh, with well, the Well, I mean, I think that if when it's working, it's amazing. You know what I mean? Like I remember I, I told this story recently. I remember being with Train at a, um, at a baseball game at the Pittsburgh Pirates were playing a baseball game and Train was playing in the field after the game. And the Pittsburgh loses – there's like 35,000 people at this baseball stadium. They roll the stage out. Everybody stays. And because Train's playing this like after, after the baseball game sort of concert. 
and it's time for us to go on. And we're way over like in the third base dugout area. And it's time for us to walk across the field to go to the stage. So the band, most of the band and a couple of the crew guys are walking ahead of us. Me and the singer are kind of way behind. So they're shining these big spotlights on the group in front of us. Me and Pat are kind of walking. They don't realize it's it's him, you know. So we're walking, and the crowd's cheering, and there's cameras going off, and the guy's like, ladies and gentlemen, you know, get, doing all that, building it up. You know, and we had just spent, you know, Train's career had gone down, and then Hey Soul Sister happened, and it exploded, and we busted our asses. I mean, we were gone from in in 2010 from march to christmas me and the three of those guys were never home for a week you know 10 months straight because we'd go to europe go to australia come back go to south america go to europe again go to japan again we were just endlessly going and we killed ourselves and we really worked harder than anyone does to try to rebuild their career so we're walking across this this incident happened in like august of 2011 and Pat looked around and he just looked up and he saw all these people and all this stuff. And he just looked at me and goes, dude, how did this happen? And he would never normally ask me a question like that. And um, I thought about it for a second. I said, dude, it's because we fucking busted our asses and we did everything we were supposed to do. We did everything we needed to do and we didn't put, we just worked and worked and grounded out and earned it all back. And, and, you know, so when stuff like that happens, when you're, when you're busting your ass to try to do something and you achieve it, that's pretty awesome, you know. I mean, obviously, you'll have moments in life getting married or having a kid or whatever, those kind of things. Short, those are bigger events in your life, but events in your career, you know, are things like that. And that's why, like I said at the beginning of this, that's why we do this stuff. I'm, I don't give a shit if I sold one book. I, Bunny Carlos like my book. I don't give a fuck <laughs> how many books I sell. You know what I mean? Yeah. I already did more than I ever imagined I would do. So, I mean, I think that's the important part about it. Because at heart, we, we are all still those kids that believe. You know what I we mean? We believe. We believe. <laughs> so, yes. I'm that kid too, even though I'm, you know... I've been that kid three times over now, probably, but it's just, that's what it is. And that's, I, I, I want to believe, I want this to be, you know what I mean? I want to go see my favorite bands and do all that stuff. That's why I do this. So when it works and you bust your ass and it pays off, and I don't mean that just financially, I just mean doing some stuff like that. Those are the magic moments that make it worthwhile. Because of course, as you know, for every awesome story like that, you also have the, oh, we were stuck on the side of the road for four hours with a flat yeah. tire and nobody would stop and help us, you know, and all that crap that you have to put up with. So it's uh, ACDC said it the best. It's a long way to the it's top. It's a long if you want way to the roll. top. <laughs> it's, That's the truth. I mean, who doesn't love that? I mean, that the the arc of of a band like Train is like one of the it's 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 the it's the classic redemption story, and that hundred yeah, percent uh, personal anecdote from it is is very meaningful to me because it's it's uh, it's uh, I don't know it's it's amazing it's it's an amazing thing to. Um, to reach those kinds of heights only to kind of, as you said, lose them and then earn it all back one earn bit it at all time. back, but you had like to a decade later. And those guys, you know, that's the thing about those bands that 
that is such a um, misnomer or think people don't like if if I said to you, who do you think is the hardest working band in the in the world or who do you think is the hardest working band in rock and roll? You would you would guess 100 bands for you would guess them. But really, they are. I mean, they and the one thing is their singer can sing every single day. Like we did yeah. one time we did we did um, we did. I'm not exaggerating. You're not even going to believe this, but we did. 17 shows in 15 days in six time zones. Now, I'm not talking about three song acoustic things at a radio station. I'm talking about full-on headlining 75, 90-minute sets. 17 shows, 15 days, six time zones, one-fourth of the earth. And you know what? On the 17th show, he was better than he was on the first show. Because he's like Robin Zander. He can sing like his worst day is anyone else's dream day in terms of being a singer. He's one of the most powerful singers in modern rock music today. But you wouldn't think that because you because they're, you know, people think, oh, train, that's my wife's favorite band. Yeah. You know, but but they're really not. I mean, he's like Robert Plant or Steven Tyler or Robin Zander. And I throw those compliments out understanding what I'm saying. You know what I mean? I wouldn't yes. call any singer yeah. Robin Zander, you know? <laughs> yeah, of course. So yeah, he can really, really sing. It's pretty amazing. So because of that, you know, if we had to do, if we had five shows in a row and five shows in a row, we need to do another one and make it 11 in a row. He was like, yeah, dude, let's do it. Let's do it. So we busted our asses for two years to bring that whole thing back. So that's what happened. So when it works, it. it's very, it's very good to see that happen. It's magic when you get to have those moments. It's magic, right? Um, when it really works and it's really kicking and it's really going, it's pretty magical, you know. I always wanted as a kid. I always thought the one thing I always wanted was I wanted to work for a band I loved from when I was a kid because if I could end my career working with someone I loved from when I was a kid, then I would kind of see the whole thing come back yeah. to where it started, sort of. And I do love Weezer, and I, I rode around in my car listening to Blue Record in 1994, 26 years ago. And that's probably as close as I'll get. You know, I don't think Cheap Trick's going to call me or Kiss is going to call me, but <laughs> and all the bands you I never like know. are, are, are going to be done, you know, so in a year or so. So... I'm happy to ride it out with those guys because we all get along really well. I like those guys a lot. And uh, and they're a great band and they play all my favorite songs every night. So it's a good thing. Well, speaking of of, of the uh, of the kind of feeling that you illustrated earlier about the first time you get to be in the room as your heroes. Uh, and right. It's, that, that, that just kind of that physical fact is so overwhelmingly uh, yeah. amazing. I had the same feeling the first time that I saw Weezer when they were on the, when I, I was, I think it was my 14th or 15th birthday, but I, they, they played right. with the Pixies and uh, you know, the same, same kind of feeling of like, Oh my God, that's Patrick. Like, you know, <laughs> right. it's like, yeah. And we just did a giant tour uh, in 2018, 17 and 18. We did like 50 shows with the Pixies. Yeah. Again, that's They're so pretty awesome. amazing. They have a, um, they have no set list, and the, and and uh, Charles, their singer, has a giant piece of paper about this this big, and it has about fifty one word song titles on it. And when he walks out there, 
I mean, he knows he's going to play Where's My Mind, and there's probably like six other songs that you know they're going to play. Yeah. But there's no set list. So he walks out there, and he looks at that piece of paper, and he just starts playing whatever the first song is. And the other three wow. have no idea what the next song is going to be. That so is insane. That he might, I've seen them play Where Is My Mind first. I've seen them play in the middle of the set, and I've seen them play it last. But the set was different every single night. It was pretty amazing. That's pretty cool. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, they're cool. We got to hang out with them a lot. They're, they're, they're a good bunch. Yeah, I, uh, I I got to spend a little bit of time with uh, with Joey uh, one night. They played here in Hamilton, and they they went to um, a local bar afterwards. And it was it was uh, it was it was privileged information which bar they're going to. And I got a text: the Pixies are right. You got like, oh my god! <laughs> yeah, they told yeah. the leak, the security yeah. leak. I'll never forget too. There was, uh, there was. I, w- I was about twenty years old when this happened, and one of my—I mean, we're all huge Pixies fans. And one, one of my friends um, went up to Charles and asked for an autograph, and kind of cornered. And I totally understand the guy's like he's had, he's at, he's he's just trying to unwind and talk to some people, and right. uh, and Charles did one of the funniest things I've ever seen. He was given a pen, so he was holding a pen, and uh, he didn't. Uh, he was asked to autograph this ticket and he didn't even look. He just kind of dragged his hand across the thing and dropped the pen and said, have a good night. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, it's it a very, uh, very Pixies move. Uh, but Yeah, uh, they're really great. They were really great every single night. Yeah, great band. Um, they also played a secret show at the Casbah, which is like a hundred person venue just down the street. Oh, wow. uh, Yeah. We've Hamilton's got a bit, a good, pretty good little Pixies history. Now, Um, is that where, is that where, is Hamilton near where Neil Peart was from? Yes, it is. Um, I can't remember exactly where he's from, but it is right, right in here. Yeah. It's in that area. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I heard they were going to do some memorial or something for him. I think so. There's there's a bunch of stuff in the works. Um, yeah, there's also um, we as, had, uh, as they should, as they should, the professor, as they call him, the professor. Yeah. Um. Anyways, that's that's the end of my questions, Thomas. But I, I had such a good time talking well, to you. Me too. I always love to talk about rock and roll. Rock and roll is all my... there is, man. It's all there is. <laughs> yep, that's my favorite. Um, so hopefully we'll be back out this year. Hopefully um, we'll do some. We're hopefully we're playing in Toronto this summer uh, at the. Uh, I think it's where the uh, we're supposed to do some dates. We have a show that we're doing a tour this summer called Hell Omega. It's it's Green Day, Fall Out Boy, and Weezer, and we're supposed to play in Toronto. I suspect at the place where the Blue Jays play um, sometime in August. So hopefully we'll get to do it. Well, that would be fantastic. If you guys are here, I will be there, and uh, we'll have to uh, we'll have to meet up. All right. Well, definitely. So, yep, that'll be cool. Yeah, but hopefully, um, I just hope that hopefully we go back to work. That's what we all want to do. So that's what we need to do. Well, here's hoping uh, that's sooner than later. And um, I just wanted to say uh, quickly that uh, again, you've got a you've got a fantastic book out called "Waiting to Derail." And um, is there is there anything else uh, that you'd like to plug for the for the nope, listeners? That's it. This book came out in um, this book came out in June of uh, 
June of 2018, of course, some shenanigan news came out about Ryan in uh, February of 2019. This book only covers a very, very short period of time. It's very precise. It, um, this book starts the day that I get the phone call to tour manage Whiskey Town in, in April or May of 97, and it ends in October of 2000. So the book only covers the, the, that period of time, that like two and a half year period, almost yeah. three year period of time. And um, so it's got, it has nothing to do with any of the current business with him. But, uh, but I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I just think it's a good um, – I wrote it because I feel like it's an important story and I sort of – in the, in the spirit of what, what way we've been talking, I sort of owe it to rock and roll because think about this. I'm the person who saw this. You know what I mean? There is no human being on the planet Earth that saw this band more than I did. And I remember it all. My memory is pretty flawless. And, you know, if I something happens to me, that story's gone. You know what I mean? So that's kind of why I wrote that. I thought it was it's because I do think Ryan Adams is an important artist. And it was definitely a weird period of time witnessing sort of a there's a genius, a kid genius at work. You know what I mean? Mm. This guy could pull songs out of thin air. Now, he as most geniuses are, most people are very level like this. Okay, if you're a little good at something, you're probably a little bad at something. Ryan was like this, you know. Ryan would come home to my house because he lived with me when we weren't on tour. He would come home and he'd reach in his pocket, pull out a napkin, lay it on the table, pick up an acoustic guitar and just play you the most magical, unbelievable song you ever heard. Right. And I'd go, God damn, dude, where did that song come from? He goes, oh, I wrote it like a half hour ago at the bar. And I was like, well, what guitar did you play? It's like I sang the song in this side of my head while I played the guitar in this side of my head. I mean, wow. he could just sit there and shit out one song after another after another. Wow. Like I've never seen anyone like the, a pure – he could be a lot of things. And I know a lot of people aren't into him anymore because of his shenanigans. But he is – the purest, most ridiculous musical genius I ever met in my whole life. Like he could just, wow. you could name anything. Like I told him once, I said, let's, let's write a song like the Foo Fighters. And he went, what's the title? And I gave him a title. He put his finger to his head. He went, I got it. He played the whole song. It was better than Monkey Wrench. He wrote wow. it in 30 seconds and just shit it out and then lost it. So he could just... <laughs> He's, he would just – I always said he had longer antennas than anyone else because he would just pick these songs up that were like floating in the air and here they are. Like one time he went and made – in fact, I have it right here, I think. Let me see where it is. Hold on one second. Here's a whole Whiskey Town album that these – that he went in the studio and recorded this album. This is one of ten in the world. And it's got uh, two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven songs on it. He just wrote this for the hell of it and mailed it to the record company as a joke one day. Went, oh, here's another album. Wow. And just wrote all the – he wrote, recorded, and put all those songs out in, in three days. That is insane. And just said, 
here's another album just for the fun of it, just completely really for the hell of it, you know? And he just, it was just, now granted, you know, we stepped off the bus one morning in Aspen, Colorado, and he looked up in the sky and said, what the fuck are we doing at a ski resort? (coughs) And I was like, dude, Aspen, Colorado is a ski town. You didn't know that. I mean, who doesn't know that? So, you know, there were times where his geography skills were pretty horrendous and his understanding of, of subjects that he's not interested in is pretty terrible, but he could, he'd pick a banjo up and go, when did you pick up a banjo? I, I don't have one. I just play one every once in a while. If I see one, Wow. And he's shredding on it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, he's really just an insane musical genius. And so witnessing, that's really what the book is about. The book is about this kid who is a genius and the first handful of people, myself included, who realized it. Who realized that and are basically... Because I are... knew that that wasn't normal. I knew that when he was writing whole albums you know, every single day writing two or three songs and putting whole albums together in a week, that's not really normal. Yeah. A lot of bands struggle and toil and spend time and work hard to make records. And he just, the ease in which the songs just, Oh, here's another song. Here's another song. Here's another song. It just, it just, it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost like voodoo or something. You know what Mm, I mean? It's just hard to describe. So that's what the book is about. That sounds awesome. I mean, that, that just sounds like an interesting firsthand account of, 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 of a pretty unparalleled talent. Um, and yeah, atypical. yeah, it's, it's definitely a uh, astounding. Uh, like you just, you just couldn't believe how talented he was. But at the same sense, he and you know the the other part of it that's so odd is. You know, he's a punk rock dude. He has a black flag tattoo, you know. So here's all these guys playing, you know, listening to Wilco and Sunvolt and all these alternative country bands. And then they go see Whiskey Town and Ryan smashing guitars and ruining the show. And I understand why he's doing it because it's punk rock. You know what I mean? But these people that are like Wilco fans are like, why, why did he destroy those guitars? I don't understand. You know, and it's because his band was a punk rock band that was playing alternative country music. It wasn't an alternative country band at all. It was a punk rock band. So you might go see them one night and it might be amazing. Like you couldn't believe how good it was. You might go see them the next night. It might be terrible, like terrible, terrible. You might go see him the next night and he smashes a guitar and walks off 10 minutes into the show. And I can't, can't collect the money because we didn't play very long. Yeah. You know, so it was always, and you never knew which it was going to be. So it was very much like the replacements. You know, you might go see the replacements back in the day. One night you might see them and they were amazing. The next night you might see them and they were in the audience and the crew was up on stage playing kiss songs and they're in the audience drunk. Yeah. I would never play. Yeah. It would make their crew band go up on stage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you just, they were very similar to replace. I, I certainly believe to some extent that Westerberg and the replacements were certainly a model for him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, if you listen to avenues off strangers almanac, which is the big, the whiskey town album that we were touring, you listen to the song avenues off that album and then go listen to skyway by the replacements. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> a couple similarities. Uh, I just, some, I just, some, some borrowing. Some similarities for sure. I just remembered the name of uh, the of the the replacements roadie band uh, that mm-hmm. that 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 would play when the replacements were in the crowd uh, and their band their their roadies would play. The band was called Jefferson's Cock. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever read the Bill Sullivan book? By the no, book? I really want to Lemon Jail. Yeah, he's no, a good I, dude. I know him from those days because he uh, he had a Raleigh connection. His brother. Bill Sullivan's brother owned a, a pretty like the um, Raleigh is where the college in Raleigh is NC State that's right in downtown Raleigh and uh, his Bill Sullivan's brother owned the coffee place that had been there for like thirty or forty years and Bill Sullivan lived in Minneapolis and ran a bar called the Four Hundred Bar that mm-hmm. holds four hundred people it's in downtown right near uh, right near the uh, the Prince Place. I can't remember the name of that place. First but, Avenue? Uh, yeah, 7th Avenue. First entry. Yeah, yeah. First Avenue, 7th First Street Avenue, 7th or whatever. Street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was somewhere right near there. But uh, but yeah, that, that book is really good. You should read that. He was he was me with those guys. Yes. Like he was in the RV when they destroyed the RV. Yes. When they played Toronto and then they – the replacements would always carry paint with them. So <laughs> – Back in those days, these bands would tour and you'd go in the dressing room and you'd go, hey, man, can't wait to see you guys again someday, blah, blah, blah. And then your band would show up a week later and you'd read it, right? Well, the replacements would carry white buckets of paint with them and they would paint over all that shit just to be assholes. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So apparently there's a famous story where they were drunk and fucked up and they were leaving Toronto and they actually drove right past your house on their way to Buffalo and they got into the paint in the RV and they started cracking open these gallon jugs of paint and throwing it all over each other. And then the American customs guys were like trying to search the van and the van was torn out. I think they took the toilet out of rip the toilet out of the floor of the RV and threw it out onto the QEW. Oh my like between God. Toronto and Buffalo. So it's in that book. That's my favorite band of all time. Yeah, they, <laughs> they did all that stuff for sure. It sounds like it might have been fun at times, but um, it's one of those things that was probably not fun while you were doing it, but then years later, it makes for a good like campfire story. I would say the same thing. I mean, I, I wasn't thrilled when you know Ryan Adams was kicking the monitors off the stage of the Fillmore, and I was not getting paid that night. You know, it's yeah. funny now, but it wasn't funny then. You know, when so, you're living it, yeah, yeah. When you're living it, you're like, oh, come on, dude. Yeah. You know, so much like anything else you kind of tend to glamorize the uh the struggle the struggle and you remember the good parts and you mentally block out the bad yeah. parts yeah <laughs> saves and you thank some money god on therapy. thank god for yeah that. thank yeah. god <laughs> thank god you don't remember everything yeah exactly um okay well thomas thank you so much for your time oh, you're and very I, welcome I'm i had such a such a great time talking to you about, um, you know, uh, and relating to you about just being two kids in rock and roll. And that's what, that's really what it's all about. And trying that's to, what it's all trying, about. trying to rub shoulders with your heroes while you can, and just enjoying right. this, this, this thing that, uh, thank God exists rock and roll. That's so, right. Amen. Um, so we're hoping, uh, we're hoping we all get back on the road real soon, but until then, um, take care and, uh, 
And again, everybody check out, check out Thomas's book, uh, waiting to derail. Um, and, um, again, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm happy to do it. Thanks again. All right.